0: Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Wayne Hoffman, in for Sarah Ivry. Today, how a nice Jewish doctor ended up at the forefront of the fight against AIDS. There were two populations who found themselves on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic in America. There were, of course, the people infected with HIV, most of them gay men, whose rapid and painful declines left their lovers, friends, and families devastated, fearful, and angry. And then there were the medical professionals, the doctors and researchers, scrambling to figure out where the virus came from and how the hell they could stop it. Three decades later, it's sometimes hard to remember what a terrible and terrifying time that was. For Dr. Michael Sag, who in 1981 was just starting a residency in infectious diseases, it changed the course of his life. Sag would go on to help found one of the most advanced clinics for AIDS research and patient care. In a new memoir called Positive, Dr. Sag looks back on those years. He also offers a scathing critique of the U.S. healthcare system and how it fails those who need it most. We're delighted to have him on the podcast today. Dr. Michael Sag, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks for having me. In the book, you write that when you were growing up in Louisville, your mother always knew you'd be a doctor, although maybe not the kind of doctor you turned out to
1: be. What were her plans for you when you were a child? I was supposed to be a surgeon. I disappointed her greatly when I decided not to do surgery, and even more so when I said I was doing academic medicine. One of her quotes would be, I didn't send you to medical school to be that kind of doctor. I sent you to medical school to come back to Louisville and be a doctor here in town and a surgeon. So what happened along
0: the way? How did you go from being on your mother's track to being a surgeon to helping to found one of the most innovative AIDS clinics in the country, far away
1: from Louisville. A bunch of serendipity, which I guess is sort of a point of the book to people in training. You cannot plan your career. No matter how much you try, things happen, and you have to go with the flow. If you're smart, you'll go with the flow. So in my case, what happened, I went to Birmingham to start my training, and I was going to be another bald Jewish cardiologist because I thought the world needed just one more. And then I got tired of asking questions about chest pain, because it didn't matter what the answer was. We were going to cath them anyway. So I got bored with that, and I was sort of intrigued by the Sherlock Holmes nature of infectious diseases. You put clues together, you try to figure it out, and then you move forward. And also in infectious diseases, historically, you could cure people. Unfortunately, as I was getting into this, the HIV epidemic hit and hit pretty hard, initially in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and other major metropolitan areas, it ultimately hit us in the rural south in Birmingham. And we were forced to respond. And how did you respond? And, and when? At what point did this all come to a head for you? 1982, 83, we saw our first cases. There were people basically coming home to die from the other metropolitan areas. And the doctors in the Regular practice were baffled, as we all were, but they turned to the university setting to try to work it out. As I was going through my training, more and more and more people were being referred in from all over the state of Alabama, traveling 50, 150 miles to come see us. We might figure out what they had and get it fixed for a short term, but then they always came back more ill, more desperate, and tragically, a lot of them dying in the process. So to me, I tried to take that desperation, frustration, anger and turn it into something positive, pull together with the community to find a way that we could bring this under control. It sounds uh, very
0: neat and orderly, but I'm sure it wasn't at the time. And, And for many people, it must be difficult to imagine what it was like at that point. So could you take us back to the early 80s and tell us really what what it was like as you remember it in terms of the urgency of the situation, but also just the sheer bafflement from a
1: medical perspective about this virus. The best way to think about it is to almost imagine like it were just starting to happen today. Suddenly, a young person shows up with fever, cough, shortness of breath, skin lesions, bumps on their skin that didn't make any sense. We'd never seen anything like it before. And we were forced to begin to say, well, this looks like it might be a toxin or it might be some sort of contagion. But it took a while, three years, actually, for all this to come together. So on one hand, it was mystifying. On the other hand, it was terrifying. It was terrifying for the patient who knew something was desperately wrong but couldn't understand what was happening. And then they looked to the providers who were equally baffled, and that was harrowing for patients to think, I've got something wrong with me, and they can't figure it out. After it got figured out a little bit that it was a virus and it was causing problems, then there was more terror because, okay, we see this happening. What can you do about it? And the sad answer initially was nothing. We can hold your hand, keep you comfortable, help you die with dignity. And that was it for quite a period of time between 81 and 88
0: And on top of that, at the time, there's a tremendous stigma attached to people who are dealing with AIDS. I'm wondering if there was also a stigma attached to you as a medical professional
1: working with AIDS patients at the time. There was some stigma for me, but to be honest, in comparison, it was trivial. Um, I found myself more fighting the fight for the patient and fighting the fight against some hospital Not administrators, because they were pretty supportive, but other physicians in the hospital said, you can have your clinic, just don't have your patients anywhere near mine. Because if word gets out that somebody's sharing in a waiting room with somebody who has HIV, those patients may never come back again. So I was sensitive to that concept, but I also was steadfast in saying that the patients I take care of deserve the best we have to offer all the time. How did your wife deal with your career decision? She's been supportive the whole way. The only time it got a little dicey was when I was running late and I had to stop by a patient's room and didn't have time to go by the lab. So I drew some blood and packed it up and triple wrapped it and put it into a a freezer container and brought it home because I was going to process it the next morning. And I stuck it in in our freezer. And She saw me put something, and she said, what did you just put in the freezer? I said, oh, it's just a package. She goes, what's in the package? I said, oh, just some blood that I drew from a patient. She said, what? I said, but it's triple-wrapped. She goes, I don't care if it's quadruple-wrapped. You're taking that out of there. So I had to pack it up separately. So I learned not to do that. That's a mistake you make once. (laughs) Exactly. But she's been remarkably supportive the whole time. I think she, like a lot of the people in Birmingham now, are extremely proud of not just what I was doing, but the entire— community, how we pulled together in a way that truly is community, both in the general community, but also in the Jewish community. Explain what you mean by that. The clinic was founded around the notion that we would create a medical home for everyone who had HIV. It wasn't just a place to receive care. It was a place to find refuge, compassion, and hope. And to me, that's very Jewish. The notion that people in need are looking for people around them to buoy them up. It's what we do very well as Jews. We care about other people. We put ourselves on the line. None of us know when it might be our time, when we're going to be in need. And so we pay it forward. That's a very Jewish notion in my mind. We pay it forward. We do the right thing to help other people because who knows one day it may be us but even if it's not we'll just be grateful and move on and help other people right and that's a good thing
0: your clinic the 1917 clinic in Birmingham was unusual in that the people it was serving were simultaneously patients but also research subjects why was this combination necessary and how did it affect your experience as a research doctor
1: It was essential, from the very beginning, to grasp the notion that something this new, something this different, needed to be studied every second of the day. So to me, every patient who walked in the door was a studied patient, even if we were just providing routine care. I, we needed to know what happened to them over time, how their blood work changed, how a certain medicine affected their long-term outcomes. So it was imperative from day one that we captured information on them in a way that we could go back and analyze and begin to put the story together, even if it was in retrospect, about what we did that made people better and sometimes what we did to make people worse.
0: One of the most unforgettable aspects of your book is the the profiles you give us of so many patients you worked with over the years. One of them in particular that struck me was a man named Joel. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about him.
1: Joel was the first Jewish patient I took care of, at least that I knew was Jewish. His family was in the Orthodox tradition. And Joel was a free spirit, uh, long reddish hair, wire-rimmed glasses. And Joel and I bonded initially simply because we shared a common Jewish tradition. And we joked and spoke Yiddish with each other. And it, it was very special, that relationship. And he kept getting sicker as was want to happen and went through a a bunch of the early drugs, AZT and a little bit with this other drug called DDI. But ultimately those drugs failed and Joel got sicker and sicker. And it ultimately came down to a very poignant moment that I do talk about in the book where he's clearly dying. He's on a deathbed. And I was rounding with a group of house staff, but they didn't know him and he wasn't on our service. But I wanted to go back because I knew his last moments were at hand. And I walked into the room and it reminded me of If Rembrandt were alive, he would have painted a painting called Death Watch instead of Night Watch. And you could picture Joel on the bed, his parents on one side, his siblings on the other, a rabbi at the foot of the bed, and a heart monitor beeping along. Everyone in the room was focused on the heart monitor, not on Joel. And I walked in, I saw what was going on, and I said, I'm going to disconnect the monitor. So I took the monitor off. And then everyone's attention turned to Joel, as it should be. Um, I kissed him goodbye and walked out and broke down in the hallway. And the house staff saw me, and I waved him off. And I said, give me a minute. And after we did, I took him in the room, and I said, This is the essence of what it's like to be a provider. We should care about our patients. We should feel whatever it is that we're feeling at the moment. And if you learn nothing else rounding with me for a month, that's what I want you to walk away with. Joel went on to die within an hour of the time that I visited. And what's interesting is that as this book was released, the rabbi, who's now living in Israel, emailed me from Jerusalem and told me how poignant that experience was for him as a rabbi, because what he expressed was that my simple walking in the room and disconnecting the monitor and forcing the family and him to spend the last moments focused on Joel, and not every bleep of the heart monitor, he felt was a profound lesson. So I responded and said, Rabbi, how did you know the story was in the book? He goes, I haven't read the book. I just remember that story, and it stuck with me for all these years. I took that as a very high compliment.
0: As someone who spent years as an AIDS activist myself, I was curious to read your thoughts about the role that activists played in developing treatments and facilitating research. You praised them at one point for their lack of patience. But at the same time, you were personally targeted by activists. They protested outside your clinic when you couldn't offer an expensive treatment called pantamidine. And members of ACT UP San Francisco threw blood, albeit fake blood, on you as you're preparing to address the 1996 International AIDS Conference in Vancouver. Looking back now, How important was activism in fighting the epidemic? And how do you think activists and doctors can work together
1: better in the future? The activists were essential. They were the expression of all that horror and rage and frustration with a system that was not responding quickly enough. And in retrospect, there's no way – even if we had tried harder, that things would have happened a whole lot faster. But that insistence, that persistence, that verbalization of you're not doing enough was very motivating and was essential, I think, in galvanizing multiple entities that needed to work together, patients, families, providers, community, government, industry and that pulling together in a common direction was all from the power of the activists how we can use it today simple we need to put that same effort and pulling together to fix our very broken healthcare system and that's what we need to do we need activism about healthcare I, i'm amazed that we put up with the nonsense we do every day all of us we become to use an immunologic term, anergic, which means non-responsive. We don't even notice the dysfunction around us because it's so overwhelming that we can't respond. So diagnose for me, doctor, what is wrong with the American healthcare system today? Chaos, in a word. It's chaotic. It's fragmented. It's dysfunctional beyond description. When I go down the street and I ask the average person on the street, who has the best healthcare in the world? It's like having an ESPN camera on them. We're number one. It's the U.S., we're number one, but we're so far from it. What I don't think the general population understands is that among people who go bankrupt personally in the United States, two-thirds of them go bankrupt because of a medical bill. And among those, 75% of those people have or had health insurance. And so insurance by itself isn't the answer unless it's good insurance. And the pushback that we're seeing against Obamacare is that the costs are rising for the premiums relative to what somebody had before. Well, the reason is that that prior policy was dreck. It was trash. And that had a limit or it had a pre-existing condition waiver or whatever. And so somebody thought they had coverage, as I say in the book, they thought they had a ticket, but it wasn't an e-ticket to Disney World. It was, an, it was an A ticket. It barely got you on the merry-go-round. You couldn't get on Space Mountain with that. And so the take-home point is that we need, as a society, to recognize the pitfalls in our current system, which means three things have to happen. One, everyone, whether they like it or not, have got to get somewhat educated about our current state of health care delivery. Two, in areas where it's weak, we need to shore it up. And that means getting coverage for everyone because those people who don't have insurance are costing all of us because our premiums on our insurance go up because the hospital still provides care to the uninsured. And how do they pay for it? On our back. So it's an occult form of taxation. And we need to pick up the rock and shine a light on that so we can deal with it. And the third thing is to get active, to get angry about this like I am share the anger, create the activism, and do like we did to bring HIV under control, pull together as a country, get government, industry, average people on the street pulling in the same direction. And I think it's going to take activism to make that happen. That's what the book was about. That's why I wrote it. In the book, I try to contrast the struggle and ultimate victory in bringing HIV to some degree under control and the dysfunction and craziness of our healthcare system. And I, my point is that the lessons we learned by pulling together to fight AIDS are the same exact lessons we need to apply to fixing our healthcare system. Activists working with providers, bringing government industry together. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. We have to transcend the politics. There are people in the country who are benefiting from the chaos. They're going to fight us every step of the way, and they're formidable. They don't just make billions. They make hundreds of billions of dollars on the dysfunction. It's in their personal financial interest to keep the dysfunction going. So in many ways, the order to us, the cause, is much bigger than HIV ever was because of just the enormity of the financial conflicts that are there and the people who are benefiting from chaos. They're fighting to keep the chaos.
0: A lot of the the work you describe doing with patients in your book is really more spiritual than quote-unquote medical. And actually, at one point in the book, you say that you felt more like a rabbi than a doctor. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, there's more to being a physician or a provider than simply writing prescriptions. It, it's about connection. It's about healing. And in that regard rabbis or clergy and providers, physicians, have a lot in common. I looked at my role as not only providing information and guidance and recommendations about treatments, as much as someone who provided hope and a vision for the future, that yes, today we're struggling, but tomorrow is going to be a lot better if we can just hang on. And keeping that faith In every sense of that word, keeping that motivation, keeping that forward focus, got a lot of people through this. And I don't think it's unique to HIV. I think it's part of medical therapy in general. And it's something that I'm afraid with all the chaos that's in our system today that we're losing. And that's really a lot of the motivation of why I wrote the book.
0: Michael Sag, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. Dr.
0: Michael Sagg is the author of Positive, One Doctor's Personal Encounters with Death, Life, and the U.S. Healthcare System. It's out now from Greenleaf Book Group Press. For more information, come to our website, which is tabletmag.com. As always, we welcome your thoughts on today's podcast. Post a comment on the site or email us at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Wayne Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening. Sarah Ivery will be back next week, and we hope you'll come back, too.